Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Jesus stood up. He said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church at home. Uh, my name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to give a special welcome to any of you who are just watching with us uh, for the first time. If you stumbled across our video on Facebook or YouTube, or if you're watching with family, uh, whatever it is, we're just really glad that you're here with us uh, to worship. Also, I just want to um, apologize for the camera work. That is my fault. It's been a while since I have had to do that. And um, honestly, worshiping at home has never made me more thankful for our AV team. So Alex, Chris, Nick, Thomas, all of you guys, we're so thankful for you. And we are so excited to have you back soon. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, to talk with you all this morning. We're going to be talking about John 7.53 through 8.11 as uh, Caleb read for us. So I, I feel like there's an elephant in the room when it comes to this passage that I, I kind of need to address before I can really get into it. So if you're looking at your Bibles, if you were listening um, or if you were reading along with Caleb as he was reading it, you may have noticed that there is uh, a little note in your Bible or maybe this section of text is in italics for, uh, in your print Bible or, or if you're on your phone or whatever it is. So you might be asking yourself, what is this note? What does that mean? Why is it in italics? Um, and sometimes stuff like that can be really distracting. And so I just want to address it before we get into the passage so that you can kind of think about it and then we can kind of um, go into what it actually is saying. So the note in my Bible, I'm just going to read to you what it said. It said, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have, John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John, and they give some other places, some places in John and some places in Luke. So you're reading this, you might be like, what does that mean if it's not in the early manuscripts? Why is it in my Bible now? What, what do I do with this? How do I think about this passage? Do I, you know, is it even worth talking about or preaching or reading? And so I want to give you a little bit of contact, context from the research I've done uh, this story is missing from all Greek manuscripts before the 5th century. So when it says the earliest manuscripts, that's what it's referring to. And the earliest church leaders don't comment on it. So in their, the earliest church leaders in their like kind of commentaries on scripture, they just skip over this part of John. 
And when it does start to show up in the Gospels later after the 5th century, there's really no consensus on where. So that's where that note in my Bible says like, oh, sometimes it's in this place in John. Sometimes it's in Luke. And then the last thing that kind of makes this passage a little bit different is that the style and the vocab, so like the way that John, or the way that this passage is written, is more unlike John, like the rest of the book of John, than any other paragraph in the book. So it's a short section, but it's more unlike any other section in the, in the book than, uh, than any other one. So what does that mean? Should we not read it? Should I not preach on it? Should we not talk about it? Obviously, we don't think so, because I'm going to talk about it this morning. Um, and clearly, the publishers of your Bible didn't think so, because they still included it, right? There's lots of people who still talk about this passage and use it in the study of Scripture. So why? Why is that? Why, why do we still treat it as something we should look at? Well, again, more history context. Uh, there are 5,800 partial and total manuscripts of the New Testament. That is a lot. <laughs> And especially when you compare it to other historical um, literature from that time period, all these other historical um, manuscripts that have been written down and passed on and we still have today had somewhere between two and 10 copies. So we've got two and ten, somewhere between two and 10 to 5,800. So there are pros and cons to having that many manuscripts of one book or of one story. Because you've got more variants, right? There's going to be more variants if you have way more manuscripts. But you also have more opportunity to correct mistakes. So you have more opportunity to like kind of screen certain things out, um, to see what things show up most often and which things don't. And so one scholar, his name is F.F. Bruce, he says that if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording in truth is remarkably small. So he basically is saying, because we have so many, it's easier to see which things like shouldn't actually be there. It kind of screens itself out because it doesn't show up as many times or it shows up with too much variance where it's like, uh, we're just not sure this doesn't seem like it actually fits. And so if you kind of think about it, if you had two manuscripts and one had it and the other didn't, what would you do, right? Like you just kind of have to flip a coin. Do we include it? Do we not include it? But when you have as many manuscripts as we have of the New Testament, you can see, oh, there's enough here that shows that this, this story really does seem like it should be included. And when you think about where it should be included, that's the really tricky part because most people look at it and think, yeah, this probably wasn't written by John. It just doesn't seem like it fits in um, with the original manuscript. It doesn't seem like it fits with his writing style. And yet most people still agree that this probably happened. It was probably a real story, an encounter with Jesus that was written down by someone and needed to be included somewhere in the New Testament. So, why do we think that? It fits theologically, right? There's nothing that seems to be um, out of step with what John is trying to communicate or with what Jesus communicates in his ministry. It fits historically. There's a lot of historical details that would be very likely to be true. And uh, with all of that, even if it wasn't written by John, there's some symmetry here where it's placed in that, you know, in the beginning of this chapter, some people are picking up stones to stone this woman. And at the end of this chapter, people are picking up stones to stone Jesus. So 
All that to say, what do we do with this note? I think it's helpful to know, it's helpful to think about, okay, maybe this wasn't originally a part of John, you know, maybe it fit into Luke better, or maybe, you know, whatever, a different place in John, but it seems that it's still a true story, an encounter with Jesus. And so at the end of the day, if we want to become more like Jesus and we want to see more of who Jesus is, it's still something we should look at. And if there's a consensus that it fits theologically, fits uh, historically and has been used for a long time now by many uh, Bible scholars, pastors, anybody who reads it, I think we can still include it and still kind of look at it as something to um, to learn from. So again, there's a lot more to that. There is a ton of like s- study that's done on this type of stuff and I just barely skimmed the surface. So I hope it at least gives you some peace of mind as we move into this, that you can trust this as part of scripture and that as we move into it, you can still give your full attention to it. If you still have questions, we do a question and response time after every one of our church at home uh, services. So if you have a question about this or about anything else I talk about, feel free to throw it in the chat on YouTube or Facebook, whichever one you're watching on, and we will, I will attempt to answer them uh, at the end of all of this. Okay, elephant out of the room, hopefully. We are in a series uh, called um, Devil's Advocate. So we're talking all about this opposition that Jesus faced in his ministry. So the big opposition that we're going to come against today is that the Pharisees want to know, are you with us or are you against us? Right? There's this two, these two options. You're either on our side and we're going to like get behind you or you're not and we need to take care of that. And the way that they do that in this passage is they bring this woman, as you heard in in the passage that Caleb read, and they want to know, are you going to condemn this woman or are you going to acquit her? And they, they come to this because the Pharisees really don't know what to do with Jesus. He breaks all of their rules. He does everything different from what they expect. And yet he has this following that keeps growing and people keep looking to him instead of looking to the Pharisees. And they want to know, is this guy going to be a problem for us? Or is he going to be the one that we're going to like be a part of? We're going to back this guy as the new leader and we're going to kind of join our ministries together. And you probably have noticed from what we've been reading in John, and you're going to see it really clearly in this passage, they lived in a very polarized culture. Okay, uh, Either you are for everything that the Pharisees believed in or you're against them. And it was you know, like, what's the socially acceptable way? You're either with the socially acceptable way or you're not. Very polarized, black and white. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Uh, Sometimes I feel like we live in a a time right now that is somewhat similar, right? There's a lot of issues that people are very divided on and people are, um, the way they approach it is either you're with me or you're against me. And there's no gray, there's no middle ground, there's no third option. You either are for this thing or you're against it. And whichever one you choose is how I view you, right? There's all these different, I could get into it, right? And we're not even, haven't even gotten to the election part of 2020 yet. And we have a lot of these issues already. So I think there's a lot of similarities actually between what we are facing right now and what uh, the culture was in Jesus's time. I read an article this week. Uh, it was by a guy named Abdu Murray, who he grew up bicultural. So his family is Middle Eastern, but he spent most of his time growing up in the U.S. So he makes this connection. He, he's just reflecting on the differences in culture between the U.S. and the Middle East. And he makes this connection to the, um, the cancel culture that we have going on right now, if you're familiar with that term. 
uh, and talks about how it's actually very similar to the shame and honor culture of the Middle East, the t- of what Jesus would have been in. If you've never heard of cancel culture, uh, I'm going to read you a quote from this article, and you can listen to it and see if you recognize this type of behavior happening right now in the West. So he says, when a person does or says something that runs afoul of current cultural preferences, we cancel that person. If she's a musician, we call for boycotts of her music. If she's an athlete, we delight in burning her jersey and posting the bonfire on social media. We now hoist the socially guilty onto a pike for all to see as they writhe, justly deserving what they get for having offended the collective. Be warned, we won't engage your ideas. We will engage you and shame you out of existence. You will be canceled. Right? And if you've, you've noticed this, probably it happens most on social media. It doesn't seem to be happening yet in like real life in person as much I've seen, but definitely happens a lot on the internet. And it's different than our normal Western culture that we've been a part of. Normally, Western culture has this idea, if you do something bad, then you just did something bad. You're not a bad person. You just made a mistake, right? You might even hear this, or maybe you've told a friend this, like, oh, it's okay. I know you made this mistake, but like, you're still a good person. That doesn't, you know, you're not a bad person for doing that, which is very different from the Eastern culture, which is you do something bad, you are bad, right? It's just this like exact equal. And we're seeing that with cancel culture right now in our society. You say something wrong or you do something wrong, you're done. That is who you are. uh, And there's not really any chance of redemption. So you're seeing some of the parallels here between what Jesus is uh, uh, living in and how we kind of have bits and pieces of that showing up in our culture. I definitely don't think we've switched completely to that. Um, Even in the article, (laughs) the author was like, yeah, it's cute. Westerners are kind of trying this whole like shame and honor thing, but like we've been doing this for a lot longer. Trust me, we're way better at it. So I think we've got like little pieces of it showing up, but I think I want to draw on that to help you kind of understand the, uh, the cultural moment that Jesus is in and that the Pharisees are in. And the Pharisees, they love to cancel people. It's like what they live for, it seems like, right? And in this passage, we see they're going to try and cancel this woman who was caught in adultery, but ultimately, they're trying to cancel Jesus. That's what their whole goal is. That's what they're moving towards. So the big idea that we're kind of looking at is that the Pharisees want to know, is Jesus with them or is he against them? Will he follow their rules and condemn this woman? Or is he going to break tradition and kind of give her freedom? And Jesus offers a third way. That's what we're going to see. He, we see that Jesus intends not to condemn or to acquit, but to restore. Jesus offers this third way of restoration. And we're going to see that throughout the passage. And I'm just going to kind of walk through and talk about some of the ways that he offers restoration. So as the passage starts, uh, I'm going to look at verse 3. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law uh, of Moses, or the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you have to say? They were, I love John's little asides. This is like one of the best parts about the book of John is he gives us these little like, just so you know. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. Okay, so how do we know that the Pharisees are setting a trap aside from just the fact that John told us? Well, let's start with the fact that I'm pretty sure it takes two people to commit adultery. And if she was really caught in the act of adultery, 
they could have just as easily brought the man who was with her uh, to Jesus as well. But they just brought her. So it's clear that they're not really after justice or about rule following, because if they were, they would have brought both of them. But they are trying to set this particular trap, and so they bring the woman with instead. If she was caught in the act, um, it's likely that she's probably not uh, fully clothed. This would have been very humiliating to her, probably very shameful. And it shows that they just are using her, right? She's just sort of a pawn in their um, political power move that they're trying to make. Also, it puts Jesus in a very difficult spot. The thing about this is they say, the law of Moses says you must stone this woman, which isn't entirely true. The law says that people who, are, uh, who commit adultery should be killed, but it doesn't specifically say stoned. And uh, the thing about stoning at this time is that it was very unpopular. Most records show that, especially in urban areas like where Jesus was, this was not something that was typically done. It was kind of seen as, um, I don't know, unpopular, outdated maybe at this particular moment. And it's not necessarily legal either. So the Romans are the ones who are technically in power. And if Jesus were going to take that uh, um, power onto himself and say, I'm going to decide that this woman needs to be killed, the Romans probably wouldn't have been too happy about it. So they're asking Jesus to do something that the Pharisees wouldn't have even done, right? They want to show that he's going to break the law and that would discredit him and make them not one of him but they also want him to get in trouble. So they're kind of setting up this weird like initiation test uh, that they wouldn't have even passed themselves, right? They just want to put Jesus in a really awkward, tough position where it's sort of a lose-lose no matter what he chooses. But Jesus manages to find a third way, the way of restoration. And there are kind of three ways that he goes about bringing that to happen. The first is that he starts by telling the accusers to look at themselves. So he says, uh, starts in verse six, he says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, if you read this passage, the big question everybody always wants to know the answer to is, what is Jesus writing on the ground? Why is he doing that? Why is it like called to attention in this passage? And the honest truth is that we don't know. There's a ton of different theories, but there's really no, um, no consensus that we just, we're not totally sure what he's doing. So it could be a callback to like God writing the law. So he might be trying to, um, equate himself with God, which is something we see in the book of John. Uh, he could be, some people think he was writing a specific verse from the Old Testament. Some people think he was like drafting what he was going to say uh, on the, in the sand. I think the most likely option is that it was probably just sort of a delaying tactic, right? I mean, can you just imagine, like think about this scene. The Pharisees are like, ha, we finally got him. This is going to be super intense. And they've got this woman here who is probably terrified that she's going to be killed. Uh, and Jesus is like, I'm just going to, you know, play it out a little bit. I'm going to wait. I'm going to make them wait. I'm going to sweat it out just by, you know, writing in the ground a little and taking my time to answer. And I just like, oh, it's like those moments in movies and TV where you're like, please hurry it up. It's so uncomfortable, right? So there's just this tension in the air. And Jesus's answer is crazy, right? It's just mind-blowing. 
Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He flips the tables entirely and puts it on them and says, okay, what, what do you, if, it, if you're going to do this, it's going to be on you. And to do this, you need to be able to say that you are better than that and that you haven't committed that type of sin. So he doesn't acquit or condemn the woman, but he helps the Pharisees see it from a different perspective. He makes them look at themselves and says, look, you can't judge others by a standard that you can't keep yourself. And some scholars think that Jesus is specifically talking about sexual sin when he says those without sin. Um, I don't think it matters a ton either way if it was uh, if it was all sin or sexual sin. But if it was specifically sexual sin, he's kind of could be cutting through that double standard um, of men and women. So it was, it was more socially acceptable then, and honestly, I think now as well, for men to commit sexual sin than it was for women too, which could be partly why they brought the woman instead of the man. Um, but Jesus is basically saying, yeah, if you're without sin, if you've never sinned sexually ever, you know, you've never lusted or any of those types of things, be my guest, go ahead. But he knows that they haven't, that they can't. They have been with sin. So he's trying to teach them, before you judge, you need to look at yourself and realize that we've all made mistakes. He sort of appeals to empathy a little bit, um, putting, you know, put yourself in her shoes. And so they slowly go away, one at a time. And I love that it's like slowly. You can tell, they're all standing around thinking like, could I have that, you know, like, do I fit this description of being without sin in this area? Can I, can I be the one to throw? And I just want to take a moment to point out that it's the older ones who go away first. This caught my attention for some reason, and it just made me ask why. Why would the older ones uh, recognize that first and be willing to walk away? And I think that it's because over time, you become more aware of your own mistakes and your own shortcomings right? Every generation thinks that the generation, like that they're so great and the generation before that came before them is just awful. I don't know if you guys have seen or heard any of this, but like apparently Gen Z has taken to social media to just like rip on millennials, just about how stupid they are and like the things that they're into and the ways that they act are just so dumb. Uh, and I just, you see this with every generation, right? Millennials thought boomers were ridiculous. And I'm sure that boomers thought the generation above them was ridiculous. Every new generation thinks that they have it figured out, right? We're going to change the world. We know, we can see the mistakes of our parents, but we're, we're going to do it better. And look, Gen Z, I want you to do better, okay? I am rooting for you. But I also want us to remember that everybody is going to make mistakes, okay? You are going to fail, and so we have failed. And I think this is something that we see not even just within Christianity, but within pop culture, too. Um, if you've ever watched Aziz Ansari's stand-up, he's got a, a thing on Netflix. And you might know him better from Parks and Rec. He's one of the main characters in that show, if you've ever watched it. But he has this bit in one of his stand-ups where he talks about how a lot of the jokes he's previously made, like he goes back and watches his old stand-up and he is like cringing at the things he said because he realizes, wow, that's really inappropriate or like, I should not have said that. Um, and he goes on and on. It's, it's really funny. If you get a chance to watch it, it kind of builds it up. But he just makes the point of like, 
look, as you, as time goes on, you're going to be more and more aware of things. And so you're going to have things that you've said in the past that you would want no one to apply to now, right? He talks about a bit from his stand-up um, where he's talking about how he went to an R. Kelly concert and it was so awesome. And he's like, oh, and now R. Kelly's really not that great of a guy. And I, you know, I really wish that that stand-up tape didn't exist. And yet it still does. And he basically says at the end, like, Look, have some humility. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to hopefully grow and change and learn new things. Uh, and just know that you you are going to make mistakes. You have made mistakes. And that's a part of getting older, right? That's a part of being human. That's who we are. And so if we think about our own lives, I think we can all probably think of things that we wish we hadn't said or done, mistakes that we've made, ways that we've turned from God and worshiped other things. And I think that when we hold on to that, when we remember that, when we think back to where we have been, we're less quick to judge other people, right? We're not going to, we don't want to hold other people to a standard that we ourselves can't reach. And we see this, this, Jesus doesn't condemn or acquit, right? He makes people look at his own lives first. He says, look at your own sins, look at your own failures, look at your own mistakes before you're so quick to turn and judge another person. Okay, the second thing that Jesus does in his um, way of restoring is that he forgives and he calls the woman to something better. So our current culture, our current cancel culture says that if you get it wrong, you're done forever or maybe just for a time. uh, If you're really popular, you might be able to get back in. But at least for a while, you're canceled, right? You're just done. There's no hope for redemption. There's no chance for restoration. It just is what it is. But that's not what Jesus does. In verse 10 uh, of this passage, it says that Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So again, he doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't acquit her either. He's the only person there who could have condemned her, right? He said that anyone without sin can throw the first stone. That's Jesus. He's the only one who's lived a perfect life. He could have condemned her, but he doesn't. He also doesn't condone her behavior, right? He tells her, he doesn't say, you're perfect just as you are. Don't ever change. Don't let any man ever tell you that you're not, you know, this wonderful, beautiful, perfect person, right? He doesn't say that. He tells her to stop having the affair. Go and leave your life of sin. Live differently. Live better because of this. He he forgives and he offers a better way. He offers a chance for change and growth and restoration. And this would have been radical for his culture, right? I think we see a little bit of this with cancel culture. But imagine if that was everything. Like everybody believed that it was like fully present, not just online, but in person, right? So even though uh, the Pharisees wouldn't stone her, they probably still would cancel her and still shame her, right? We don't get much of what happens after this interaction, uh, but living in an honor-shame culture, it's probably likely that this woman was shamed and humiliated. It was probably likely that if this was public knowledge or if it became public knowledge, that her husband would divorce her and kick her out. Because in that time period, husbands could divorce or kick you out for anything at all, much less something where you actually did make a mistake. So in their culture, she probably wouldn't have had much hope for redemption. 
And even though she didn't die, she probably would have still experienced a lot of shame and a lot of big changes in her life because of it, a lot of big consequences. And Jesus, instead of shaming her and instead of saying, like, I'm done with you, I don't want to come near you because you are, like, tainted and I, you know, I don't want to be associated with that. Instead, he moves closer to her, right? He shows compassion. He forgives her and calls her to do something better. And it's almost like a... Um, like a, a fatherly-like compassion that you see, right? When I think about kids and I think about parenting, or even if you're, uh, you know, you've babysat or nannied, right? Like when your kid does something that's bad or that they're not supposed to do, it's not like you are like, oh, I hate you, right? Like I want nothing to do with you ever. You come alongside them and you show them like, hey, you know, you can't climb on the counter, right? You're going to hurt yourself. It could, it could be potentially dangerous, here, how about you do this instead? Or how about we do this, you know, like, why don't you go sit over on the couch and read a book? Or why, you know, in parenting, they always say, like, don't just say no, but offer another solution, something else that they can do. And so I think that you see that in Jesus, right? He comes closer to the woman. You can tell he doesn't hate her. He's not mad at her. He says, you know, he forgives her, and then he offers her a better solution. And I want to call attention to one more thing here is that it's not the other way around. He doesn't say, here's your better option. I want you to go and leave your life of sin. And if I ever catch you with that man again, then we're done. I, you know, like I've, I want nothing more to do with you. And he doesn't say, okay, I really want to hear your apology and I want to see you change your life and I want to like have all these things in place before I'm going to offer forgiveness. No, it's the other way around. He offers forgiveness and then he calls her to something better. I think that's hard for us, right? That's a, a way of thinking that is not natural for us as we um, interact with other people. So you can see he genuinely wants the best for her. And to do that, you have to have both, right? You have to have that uh, forgiveness and also that, that call to something better, to say what you're doing is not good for you. You need something different. But all of that raises a question, okay? So if he, how can he do this, right? How can he forgive when she's clearly broken the law and there's not been any, like, you know, punishment for it? Where's the justice is probably the question a lot of people would have been asking. And that leads me to my last point of how Jesus offers restoration. And it's really the, the most important po point. It's the way that he can offer restoration to people. It's because Jesus is condemned or canceled for us. Justice still happens for this woman's sin, at the end of the chapter, as I said before, uh, instead of people picking up stones to stone her, people are picking up stones because they want to kill Jesus. They're at a point where they're done with him, and they want to they see him condemned. And he doesn't have to kill the woman, like the Pharisees are asking him to, because he knows that he will be killed for her. He will be paraded around half-naked, humiliated, mocked, shamed in all the ways that she was, but even more so. He knows that he will take on all of that, all of the sin, all of the humiliation on himself so that he can offer restoration to others. Even though he had nothing to be condemned for, he was the one who was without sin. He's the one who could have condemned if he wanted to. He doesn't, and he lets himself be condemned for us. He makes a way for restoration by taking on the punishment of our sins on the cross he allows the Pharisees to cancel him, right? He's canceled by everyone. Even some of his closest followers deny him uh, and deny that they had anything to do with him. But after that, he rises again. He makes a way for restoration. He gives us hope for new life, hope for a better way, hope for change and growth. 
new beginnings after mistakes. And he does all of this through dying on the cross for us and being raised again. So what do we do with this? How do we apply it to our lives? How do we think about it? Um, What does it mean for us tomorrow, next week? The first application point I want to make is that we need to rest in Jesus's restoration. Okay, you will make mistakes. You have made mistakes and you will make more. It's who we are. It's what that we live in a broken world. And part of that is that we are broken ourselves. But Jesus doesn't condemn you for that. You can be restored to him if you haven't already. If you haven't experienced that for yourself, I want you to know that you can let go of all of that. You can let go of the guilt or the shame that comes along with making mistakes. You can let go of trying to convince yourself that even though you did bad things, you're not a bad person. You can lay all of those burdens down and be resting in Jesus's restoration for you. All you have to do is want that restoration, right? All you have to do is is confess that Jesus is Lord, that he did that for you. He was canceled on our behalf. Believe in him and accept his grace. And you can do that right now if you haven't done it before. You can lay down those burdens and accept Jesus' restoration and rest in that. You don't have to carry around the guilt or the condemnation that you might feel. And if you've already been restored to Jesus, I hope this passage gives you freedom. I think there's a lot of fear right now in saying or doing the wrong thing, right? We don't we want to engage in some of these things that are happening in our world right now, but we're afraid to do it in the wrong way. We're afraid to make it worse. We're afraid to offend people. But I just want to tell you, and I hope this is like, I'm telling you this in a freeing way. You are going to make mistakes. You are going to offend people. You're going to do it wrong. But that doesn't mean that you will be condemned or canceled, okay? You can rest in the restoration of Jesus, knowing that even when you make mistakes, there's forgiveness there. There's a call to a better life, and you can accept his grace. It's not a one-time deal, right? Like I said before, it's not like this woman was forgiven once, and if she screwed up again, then then it was over, this is a, a, a forgiveness and a grace that lasts because when we're united to Christ and his death and resurrection, we can rest in that and know that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear failure, which is a big thing I think a lot of us feel. Uh, and we can move forward with what God calls us to. We can engage in different ways. And, you know, I'm a, I am a bit of a perfectionist at times for myself. Uh, I definitely have feared failure. It's something I battle often. Uh, and one time when I was really dealing with that, I, I memorized a verse from Galatians, and it's Galatians 5.1. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So again, you see similar ideas in this verse that you do in the passage, right? Jesus says, I'm forgiving you, you're free, but don't go back to that life, right? Don't fall back into the pattern of sin that you've been in. Whether that pattern of sin is something to do with sexual sin or whether it's, you know, a fear of failure and of pride and of wanting to to present yourself well to other people. No matter what it is that you struggle with, stand firm, rest in that restoration of Jesus. Uh, You've been set free. Don't try to fall back into the trap of trying to prove yourself or earn anything or, you know, anything like that. Don't go back to that sin. All right, and then the second application point is that I want us to restore one another. Remember that you were set free, that you have made mistakes, right? Don't judge others by a standard that you yourself can't keep. 
Don't condemn and don't acquit, right? Choose that third way, that way of justice and mercy that Jesus offers us through the cross. I saw this quote on Twitter um, from a a hip-hop artist who was kind of talking about this idea and what the church should do in response to it. He says, this is the church. We will rebuke you when you are wrong. We will forgive you when you repent. But we will not cancel you when you are down, for Christ will not cancel us. Cancel culture is not kingdom culture. We don't applaud the righteous. We restore the fallen. I just thought that was such a great way of summing up what it is that we are called to do as a church and how we're called to interact with one another. And for some of us, this is going to be tough for different reasons, right? On one half, uh, some of you might be like, I hate uh, calling people into a better way, right? I I do not like pointing out other people's sin. I would rather just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and move forward. Maybe I'll just unfollow them for a while or I'll avoid them. uh, And I just, you know, I'll just wait till it blows over, right? If you grew up in Minnesota, that is most likely you, right? This Minnesota nice, passive-aggressive behavior, we got to let go of that. As a church, we need to be willing to call people into a better way of life, even if it's uncomfortable. And on the other half, some of you are like, heck yes, I am so excited to call people out. Uh, And if you're in that boat, I want to say, okay, hold on a little bit, right? Because again, we have to offer that forgiveness. And the forgiveness comes first in the way of Jesus. So if you are one that likes to get into those confrontations, I want you to stop and think about it for a minute. Because we're called to speak the truth in love, in forgiveness, in grace, in the way we go about doing it. One way I've heard that uh, this described is someone once said, I love you exactly as you are, but I love you too much to leave you there. And I think this just sums up so much what our attitude as a church should be. We need to love people and offer that grace and forgiveness. We need to love them so much that we want something better for them. We want a better way of life, a better way of following Jesus. We might have a lot of hard conversations as a church if we follow this, but I think that's so important. And I think it's long overdue, if we're being honest, for the church. So I, I want to I encourage you all to do that. I want us to think about the way of restoration that Jesus has laid out for us. To look at ourselves first and remember that we are sinners in need of grace just as much, if not more, than anybody else around us. And then I want us to be willing to forgive and to call people to something better. And ultimately, I want us to be reflecting on the cross and the resurrection, the one who makes the way for restoration for all of us possible. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to take some questions. All right, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you sought best not to condemn us or to acquit us from our sins, but to offer us this third path, this path of restoration. And you did this at great personal cost to yourself. You were condemned so that we might be forgiven. You were canceled so that in you we might rise again and experience resurrection. We repent that we have not always believed that or treated others with the same mercy that you have extended to us. And we ask that you would help us to become more like you in this area. Help us to, uh, to treat others with restoration and to restore one another in the church. That we would be known as people who forgive and, and to call people to a better, more Christ-like way of living. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have three questions today, actually. How many um, do we have time for? <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Um, uh, a few of these 
you know, maybe it could be shorter answers. We'll see how you, or maybe you talked about them a little bit in the sermon. But the first one is that uh, you said that Jesus doesn't condemn her, nor does he acquit her. Could you explain what uh, acquittal would have looked like in this scenario if he would have done that? Yeah, I guess for me, the way I was thinking about the word was kind of like a um, fully pardoned of everything with no consequence, with no justice, right? Just like, oh, you know, that never happened. You're fine. Um, there's There should be no consequence, no justice for it. Whereas um, Jesus does pardon her, but he does it through taking that justice on himself. So there is still justice there. It's not like a, you know, swept under the rug, but it's just justice in a different way than anyone probably would have expected. All right. The second question, what about accepting Jesus's restoration while also struggling with true repentance? As much as we want to change, we often commit the same sin again and again. So kind of the, how do we repent and accept the restoration at the same time? Yeah, well, well, well what does it look like when restoration is uh, doesn't always come fully right away? What happens mm-hmm. when you are maybe restored somewhat, but you continue to maybe um, struggle with a certain sin or tendency um, while trying to correct it at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think... Uh, if we're all honest with ourselves, we all have those things, right? I I admit it. I always struggle with that fear of failure. Um, And I think everyone has like some certain things that they struggle with. And I think that's not, you know, the goal. How do I want to phrase this? We're always going to struggle with sin on this side of, uh, of earth, right? Until we get to new creation, until Jesus comes back and everything is made new, we're always going to struggle with sin, But I think how we do it is important. I think, you know, always turning back to Jesus, being willing to have that repentance, um, being willing to listen to him to see, you know, like, are there other uh, steps of obedience you want me to take? You know, do you want me to, to talk to someone and have some accountability from somebody in this process? Do you want me to... Um, you know, memorize a, a verse of scripture that was helpful for me as, I, as I've wrestled with this. And I think um, there's always going to be that, right? We're still going to struggle with that. But I think as long as we're turning to Jesus, which is what repent means, like turn from and turning towards God uh, and accepting that restoration, I think, uh, I think that's just kind of where we're, where we're going to be at. And I, I know that that can sound exhausting, but I think if anything else, it should encourage us that uh, Jesus is coming back. All things will be made new at some point, and we won't struggle with these things anymore when that happens. Um, and that's the hope that we have, right? And I think over time, God is gracious to us to work in us so that those sins can change some. But other times, they're just things that stay. And I think they're, that God uses that to really help us lean into him more. You know, Paul in Second Corinthians talks about this thorn that he had um, and how it kept him humble, basically. It kept him relying on God. And I think sometimes our perpetual sins that we have act like that, right? They kind of act like a, um, a way to pull us back to God and to, to stay humble instead of just being like, oh yeah, I overcame all my sins and I'm great. So yeah, it's a tough thing, but I think, I think God uses it and I think um, it should give us even more hope for when he comes back and we can experience what it's like to be totally free from sin. How do we as Christians balance forgiveness and restoration with just punishment for moral or criminal wrongs? Yeah. um, I mean, like, punish... Yeah, there's a lot of things here. Punishment from, like, the 
from the government is one thing, I think. Um, and I think, you know, Romans talks about God putting people in place uh, so that we do have order and some semblance of justice in our society. So I think, you know, there are going to be natural consequences to our sin. That's kind of a unfortunate reality. I think sometimes we're like, but I apologized and I am going to do better next time. Or I just, you know, I see what I did, but sometimes there are still natural consequences, right? Whether it's like you said something mean to your spouse when you were mad and they still feel hurt, you know, like just because you apologize doesn't mean that they, there's still not a consequence to that. Um, and similarly, I think sometimes when we have sin that involves punishment from like a justice level or a government level, even when we're repentant, there's still consequences to that. And so I think that's not um, separate from like God's forgiveness. You can still have consequences and be forgiven at the same time, if that makes sense. Like there's not just because your sin still had something that kind of came back to you doesn't mean you can't still repent and be forgiven and rest in that restoration. I think that restoration actually is what helps us to not dwell on some of those consequences from our sin. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but if it didn't uh, send me a message or or something like that, we can talk more, um, whoever asked it.